Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets to great storytelling. Before I introduce our guest today, I'll just say this much, that when we received his latest book, uh, my office manager started reading it, snapped it up and said, this is really, really good. And so I was really thrilled to hear that from her, and I'm really excited to have John Galligan on our show today. He's the author of three books in the Heidi Kick mystery series, Dead Man Dancing, Bad Axe County, and Bad Moon Rising. Um, which will be released here in just a few uh, months. Also, he's written other novels as well. In addition to his fiction writing, he has worked as an award-winning journalist, a feature film screenwriter, a house painter, um, an ESL teacher, a cab driver, freezer boy in a salmon cannery, <laughs> and um, he teaches writing at Madison College where he his experience is enriched by students from every corner of the world. A native of Madison, Wisconsin, John is a graduate of the University of Wisconsin-Madison with an undergraduate degree in environmental policy and a master's in English literature. So, John, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you. Um, and because you invited me, I became a fan of the podcast, so double thank you. I've listened, <laughs> to, listened to a bunch of the podcasts and learned quite a bit. So, well, that yeah. is, that's great to hear that. Um, now, I don't know if you knew this or not, but I grew up right in your neck of the woods up there no, in no Wisconsin. Way. I actually live in Tennessee these days, but Watertown, Wisconsin, oh, where no my wow. roots are nestled between Madison and Milwaukee. So I sure. really enjoyed uh, We have a satellite caving. there. Yeah. Oh, really? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. 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 And then uh, near Madison is Baraboo, Wisconsin, where uh, the Devil's Lake uh, State Park, I think, is. Been rock climbing up there, so it's a really, if anyone is interested, it's a really beautiful area, great part of Wisconsin to go visit. We hope Agreed. that, um, yeah, yeah. So now, um, now in, in your latest book, uh, the one that I have here, but I know even in the previous books in this series, you really create a unique setting um, that enhances the story. Um, the one that I think that I mentioned that I have in front of me is Bad Moon Rising, but it's a Bad Axe County novel. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about that, about the county and how important is setting to you in uh, in shaping this series and shaping these stories? Right. That's a, that's the perfect question because setting is is everything for these books. I, um, Bad Axe County is a fictional county inserted between two real counties in southwestern Wisconsin, abutting the Mississippi River, and. Um, Unlike Watertown, Wisconsin, where you're from, or Madison, Wisconsin, where I'm sitting, this is a small pocket of the Midwest that was uh, bypassed by the last glacier. It is unglaciated, um, so it doesn't look like what people think of when they think of Wisconsin. And, you know, the Watertown area, we have 
big rolling, slowly rolling hills and cornfields and so forth. This is an area that um, is rugged. Um, it's basically prairie cut by rivers. So it's full of deep um, what are called coolies uh, carved by streams and rivers. It's got this amazing uh, aquifer that's spouting out spring water everywhere. Um, it's difficult to farm except up on the ridges. Um, the economy is not very good out there, uh, but it's beautiful and rugged. Um, it's got um, a very high Amish population. Um, it's got um, a lot of very, uh, you know, conservative people that are not real worldly. Um, it's also been uh, colonized, invaded, as they see it out there, by by organic farmers and other people that are bringing in uh, culture change. Um, so it's a fascinating area for me, and um, I spend a ton of time there, and it's uh, um, very unique. So, so the problems that are parts of my story, the crimes and the characters, are really all uh, organic to that setting. They, they wouldn't really necessarily even make a whole lot of sense anywhere else. I like that all the a lot. Area. Yeah, oh, sorry. what's that? It's called the driftless area, huh? And it's called that because there is no drift. Glacial drift is the stuff that's left behind when the glacier retreats. Uh, you know the, the the sand and gravel that that fills up, um, you know, all the low spots and levels out the land. I like what you said, you know, a moment ago, just about how vital setting was to the story that, to these stories that you're telling here. Um, I've always kind of believed that the best stories are rooted um, in in a specific setting, so that you can't just pick it up and stick it like your story. You couldn't just pick it up and stick it, let's say, in um, Vermont somewhere or California right. or whatever it might be. That that story. Um, is rooted closely to to the setting. Is that what you found um, uh, through your writing, or have you always felt that that setting and story kind of have a close relationship with each other? Well, the the any 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 writing or story that I like works that way. I think mm-hmm. um, um, it's got to be integral. Um, I think that. One of the things that that I enjoy about stories is they take me places. Not mm. not it's not the story itself; it's where the story is taking place, and the yeah. you know the, the the different reality of that, and that, that I can be immersed in a place that um, maybe I don't know real well. Um, so you know, in my case, uh, um, this this uh, area is uh, was settled by Norwegians. Um, they still celebrate Norwegian Independence Day. Ah, interesting. Um, it, it was also the northernmost stop on the Underground Railroad huh. because it wouldn't ratify the Fugitive Slave Act, and so it's it's got this very unique history um, and this very unique landscape. It's got, it, it, you know, people, they, they have concerns that derive from the fact that they live there, the things that they think about, the things that they talk about. Uh, the small talk, uh, the conflicts, all of those are, are wrapped up in the landscape. How can how can authors do a better job of merge or letting, uh, let's say it this way, of letting story and setting inform each other in the works that they're that they're writing? 
Oh, that's a really important question. Um, you know, in my case, uh, it's for me, it's immersion. Um, mm. I immerse myself in the setting so that I, it's not even really something that I, that I have to think about. Um, I think that, you know, you, when you go back to like the first advice you ever heard about writing is to write what you know, I think what that's really about is write kind of where you know. Mm. Um, I think you can make up a story about something you don't know, but you can't set it in a place you don't know. Um, and so I, I That's think... That's really interesting. I like that. You know, write about what you know as, as, as a location, as an environment, as an atmosphere. So in my case, for these, for these um, Bad Axe County novels, um, you know, I have some, some land out there, and I spend a ton of time out there, and I, I immerse myself in the physical landscape, I, I get um, this is still an area where there are weekly local newspapers, actual newspapers made <laughs> out of paper. Yeah, great. And uh, I read them cover to cover. I don't cherry pick. I read everything, even the ads and the obituaries and the notes from the school board meeting, hmm. um, and just completely immerse uh, in the in the setting. So I think that's it. It's you got the writer has to know the place. Um, you can make up the story, but you can't make up the place. Um, now, when uh, you were saying that, it made me think of, so I wrote this book a number of years ago uh, that takes place up in Wisconsin, up in the Milwaukee area, actually. It's called Opening Moves. And, um, but I came across something called the Wisconsin Death Trip book. Have you ever uh-huh. heard of, of that? Do you know I what sure that have. is? Yeah, it's a, it's the a first book person about... that I've ever met who has heard of it. But I have a copy right here in front of me right uh, now. Yeah, I don't, I don't have a copy, but it's about you know gore and crime and and horrible things that have happened in Wisconsin. <laughs> <laughs> Which you know, like it's anywhere else, we have our share. Yeah, it's the <laughs> oddest book, you know, and it has newspaper clippings and photos uh-huh. and so on. Yeah, I've seen that. it. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and and it's um. I think um, I'm trying to remember the actual county. It's probably near your county. I mean, I don't remember exactly, but but um, yeah, Black River Falls. I don't know how far. Oh, what happened know. there? Well, that's where um, a lot of this this strange stuff in this book occurred. Is Black really? River Falls <laughs> between 1890 and 1910? Really? Um, that they had just this incredible like surge of people who were murdered, who were um, sent to insane asylums, people were buried alive. I mean, that's kind of the crazy oh. stuff that you know is in this this book. Who, who knows if it actually all of it is true, but but um, but just this idea of you know how stories are rooted in you know a specific location, but also how you study. You know the people who live there. Um, right. Specific, mm-hmm. um, you know, the obituaries and and and, and, yes. and oh, all of that. Yes, yeah. really, really important because you know you get somebody's a summary of somebody's life, and there's so many um, ways to look at that. I mean, somebody summarized somebody's life and what they choose to include, and how they choose to include it, and and you know what what the living considered to have been important to the deceased and. Then these poor people that come along and have no obituary, you know, um, there's like nobody there to write one for them. And, um, yeah. Well, uh, is Ed Gein in your book? Because we're, uh, Wisconsin is the, is the, um, 
home to Ed Gein, who inspired the movie Psycho. Yeah, he did. And um, actually, yeah, that book, Opening Moves, uh, takes place in the 90s in Wisconsin. And and, um, there's a character in the book who's reenacting famous crimes from Wisconsin. So Ed Gein (laughs) is one of them, and then Jeffrey Uh Dahmer. And then this is kind of interesting. I don't know if I've ever told this story on the uh, Story Blender, but... um, but then there was this uh, father-son team back in the 90s, maybe 95 or so, 96. I can't recall exactly, but they they killed a police officer. They abducted this woman and took her. Eventually, they were captured, both of them, before they could kill her. And uh, they were both sentenced to more than 400 years in, in prison. And I believe they're both still up there in Wisconsin yeah. in prison. But So they did all these crazy crimes, and so... The boy was 18 when it happened, and then his father had basically trained him since he was six to become a psychopath, which it's crazy. Like, his dad would torture um, puppies in front of him, and if he cried, he would kill the puppy and stuff. I mean, just like the most insane oh stuff and, and that you've ever heard. And and so anyway, in the in the trial, it came out that this um, that the young man said, I was afraid my father would kill me if I didn't do what he said and attack mm-hmm. this police officer and so on. They said, well, why would you think mm-hmm. your father would do that? He said, well, because last semester in high school, my physics teacher gave me a B, and the previous semester he'd given me an A, and my dad said we should abduct the physics teacher, take him to a barn, and shoot him and, 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 and kill him, uh, watch him die. And so anyway, so but, John, that physics teacher was my dad. And oh. so my, oh, no. it only came out at the trial, was, right? Yeah. Yeah. But that my dad oh, my was on the, on the list of people that this, that this pair uh, of, of killers was, was targeting. And so yeah. anyway, when, when I wrote the book, I include a storyline related to that, but I, I put a note at the beginning of the book saying, you know what, this part is actually true you know like this actually happened with my father so so crazy Jeez. stuff what's in the water in wisconsin <laughs> <laughs> oh i don't know could be the could be the winter it could be it could be the alcohol we have a we're pretty strong drinking culture here oh my goodness that's funny uh, yeah. but no i remember the winters for sure before i moved to tennessee man i'll tell you hey we're coming out of it man. the sun's out yeah. today the snow's melting looking good that's that's good 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 so so yeah so setting uh, and story are tied together and the other thing that I, uh, I wanted to mention a little bit with that I know my office manager really loved about your book was just the characterization that you you came up with so I wanted to ask you a little bit of how do you come up with kind of quirky you know intriguing characters um, your story has a lot of different vibes and different things going on, but um, how do you end up? Some people believe the characters are uncovered. Some people believe that they are created. Um, and so I was just curious what your kind of approach is to creating intriguing characters. I, you know, I don't know that I have a, a, a conscious or deliberate approach. I think that the, the whole idea that creating versus uncovering. I think those two things happen uh, 
back and forth between, uh, you know, between each other. And, you know, I try to, I, if I'm going to have my, the books that, that we're talking about right now have multiple viewpoints. So, so mm-hmm. one, in one sense, I do create them because I have my protagonist, Heidi Kick, who's the young woman who's the mother and the sheriff and uh, the focus of everything. But then I have um, two other point of view characters. And in the sense of creation, I want to have one of those characters be an insider and one of them be an outsider. So, so there's that. Um, I want uh, the outsider because um, that's a tool for me to talk about the area um, through the eyes of somebody who's who's seeing it, you know, fresh. Sure. Yeah. Um, and I want the insider because the story is going to get back into the roots and the history of the community, and it's got you know somebody who knows who who's who. Um, so from that sense, I, there's a design element. Um, I like uh, a, a mixture of ages and genders and, I guess, socioeconomic mm-hmm. profiles. So there's a design element there. Um, after that, I feel my way through it. I think to write a good character, that character has to have a pretty good part of me in him or her. Interesting, um, yeah. I have to understand them on on some really um, gut level, um, understand and, and relate to them. And um, I also think that um, they, they have to, you know, a good character has to have a good conflict. The character is really defined by conflict and how uh, and w- what reaction that conflict, you know, brings out. So I think when I think about characters from a design standpoint, I think about um, a, a conflict sandwich. Basically, I want an I want an external conflict in other words i want to to have a, a conflict that is visible and forcing the character to act and react and then i want that external conflict to to resonate and pull up and evolve an internal conflict that's that's related but is you know you wouldn't see it um if you weren't inside the person's head and and following them through the through the external conflict so there are those design elements but you know, after that, it's kind of a black box, hmm. um, and it's a lot of trial and error and drafts. And I know, I feel, I, you know, when I get it, I feel it. When I feel a character, hmm. I, it's kind of an unmistakable, you know, thing just sort of latches together, me and the character. Uh, but it's not always easy, and and I've thrown a number of characters away <laughs> in the current book I'm working on. I got all the way through a draft of the book and just decided that a character that I'd invested, you know, hundred pages in um, <laughs> wasn't good enough and yeah. threw him away. Yeah. Now um, it sounds like from what you're describing that you tend to have more of an organic approach rather than the plotting and outlining approach. But I may be wrong. I mean, maybe you do outline and so on. And I'm just curious. Um, like as you were talking about, like the characters, it seems like they do sort of emerge kind of organically for you. Is that is that the case? Yeah, or yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, within within some parameters that I set externally. Um, I just listened to your interview with Eric Bork, and he talks about you know thoroughly vetting a story before you invest in it. Yeah, and so you know I I thoroughly vet the story and the characters, and so it's planned from that point um, that I know I've got something that in concept is solid as it's going to work. But then yeah, within that there's there's absolutely an evolutionary process. Um, yeah, and it's interesting. Things change I, a lot. 
I actually do kind of the opposite like when I write. I don't start with, I don't know where it's actually going to go until I get done with it. And so, so it's, it is interesting because people do have quite different approaches and, and so on like that. And, um, but, uh, but I think, at least in my view, most of the people that I've talked with you know, over the years, whether they outline or whether they write organically, I think one of the keys is really being responsive as you're shaping mm-hmm. the story and maybe yeah. nudges you in a certain direction and you're kind of like, right. huh, right. that's, that's fascinating. I wouldn't have thought of that before. So being responsive you know, to those moments, I think, really creates sort of the best best story. I, I, yeah, I agree. A plan, a plan is absolutely essential to me. I'm kind of paralyzed without one. But it's equally important to, to, to have full permission not to follow the plan. Um, there you go. I like that. And to, and to, um, go, and to go where, where the story seems to want to lead me. Yeah, and, uh, and you know, characters, I don't know if you find this, but it tends to be the case for me, but sometimes they take on a life of their own. Like, I'm writing a story, and I think, okay, I know what this character is going to do or say. Someday I'm writing it, and it's almost like they're telling me, no, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. Now, people who aren't writers think something must be wrong with me because, <laughs> you know, like, you're making this up. But it doesn't feel like that when I'm writing it. That's always a good sign. That means the character has, has come to life. And is, uh, you, now you need to follow the character instead of, instead of lead the character. <laughs> I think that's always a good place to get to. Uh, if you're willing to listen to it, you know, if you start forcing a character to do things that they wouldn't do because they must fit your outline, <laughs> yeah, you're going to be rewriting that book. I think so. And, um, you know, sometimes I've told people the key isn't necessarily just asking what this character would do, but what would this character do if I got out of the way? And then mm-hmm. suddenly mm-hmm. interesting things start to happen. Um, because we do, don't we, tend to put a leash on the characters and kind of try to lead them around. And I'm mm-hmm. like, okay, let's cut the leash and see what happens. And, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, so it's fascinating. Now, you, you teach writing. What are some of the, um, I guess, maybe areas of weakness that you tend to see in the writing of the students that you, you work with? And I'm just curious mm-hmm. if there were, you know, sort of, some weaknesses that tend to come up and some approaches that you give to people to address some of those issues. Sure. Well, one of the biggest ones is that people, uh, my, I, I think uh, there are a lot of my students, perhaps even the majority, don't read. Hmm. And that's just absolutely fatal. And you can tell it like from the first sentence. Um, so that's one of them is, is just a, just a, a lack of literacy. On, hmm. You know, and it's not like they, they don't value reading it's not like they you know they're trying to write that obviously it's something that's that's important to them and they think that they can and do and they think that they want to do but you can just tell that they haven't read the requisite 3,000 books minimum that it takes um so that's that's one thing is just that, that sense and i get a lot of i guess i've learned to call it fan fiction to be nice um um people that are you know kind of jumping into the middle of a two-dimensional story that already exists and adding more hmm. two-dimensionality to it, um, That's uh, th- which I think is part of the not reading trend. So there's that. Um, I, you know, all of these, by the way, are f- things that were my flaws, too. 
<laughs> at one point. Um, I think impatience and, and um, you know, a high degree of sensitivity to feedback and criticism and, and the tendency to want to explain why the reader is wrong. I like uh, the way you put that. I find that so true. You know, a lot of uh, critique groups or whatever term or feedback forms and so on like that, but but um, they end up being where someone feels attacked and then they end up defending and explaining. <laughs> and so like, they're not allowed to speak. There you go. That's it. You know, I like that. <laughs> take, take notes and ask questions and that's it. <laughs> But I know. yeah, that's yeah. that's the thing. Yeah, that's the thing. And, you know, we're all we're all like that. I mean, I don't sure. I don't like to hear the I don't like to hear people misunderstand me or uh, or not understand me or you know I think we're all like that. I just think that that you know to really to really grow as a writer, you have to um, take to heart the, the that the reader is always right. Uh, they may not be articulate. Um, but the fact that they've chosen to uh, here's a here's a line I took from John Gardner, who's written this book. You probably know um, it's, the art of uh, fiction, maybe. Or... Yeah, the art, the art of fiction. Yeah, that 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 what the what the writer is striving to do is seduce the reader into a vivid and continuous dream. Hmm. And the reason the reader is always right is because if the reader has something to say, anything to say, no matter what it is, it means they woke up. Hmm. Um, and so your job as a writer is to accept that they came out of the dream. Hmm. That's and that's not what like you wanted. Yeah. And you need to figure out why. And what they are saying about it is often not the point. Hmm. You know, um, what they articulate, you may have to throw that away, but just pay attention to that this, that this spot on this issue or on this character something woke the reader up um, and your like challenge that. is to figure yeah. out with your, with your own, with your own expertise, what, what happened there? What is it that disrupted the dream? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. I, I've, I've heard it put different ways, but actually like that way. It's like, um, you know, what is disrupting or getting in between the reader and the story? And sometimes as you just pointed out, they might not really realize it when they're like, well, you know, you know, I didn't, didn't, I, I didn't understand this, or I couldn't picture this, or the bad guy doesn't frighten me, or whatever it might be. That's right. helpful info, input for the, you know, the author to know. Okay, for whatever reason, at this point, readers' right. engagement was disrupted. And I need to take a look at that. That's good. Yeah. Right. So, um, so, you know, those of that, I, I think just, uh, you know, it, it, you know this because you're a successful writer yourself. It is a long road. Um, <laughs> it is a long, slow, arduous journey. And um, like, like any human beings, students would like to get there right away. Yeah. Um, and and like uh, like I, like myself at, at that point in my life, had no clue how hard I would really have to work um, and right how dedicated before. I would have to be and how much disappointment and loneliness and, you know, everything else I would have to go through. I mean, um, I and like I don't want to tear away my students by, you know, by, by, by telling that story, so I don't. 
but I just constantly encouraging them to be patient, to be patient and to be determined. I think we have to be determined. There, there are a few people, let's say a tiny percentage of people, who can write stuff amazing the first draft. Okay, most of us are not like that. Most of us have to. Or they're liars. Yeah, exactly. You know, turn through different drafts. And even earlier today, I was on a a call with uh, a publisher and my agent and talking about something. And my agent said, now, Steve, this was version 47 for you, wasn't it? When you sent it in, I was like, "Um, I don't know. (laughs) He's like, I think it was. I think it said version 47. (laughs) Whatever you sent it to me. Yeah, that sounds like me. Probably was. Never never less than 15 drafts. Yeah. So it does take a lot of work. And, and, you know, for most people uh, that give me uh, writing to look at, I might say, you know, this is really good. You know, another dozen drafts and you'll be all set. And they stare at you like, what? Mm -hmm. Another dozen drafts? I'm like, yeah, literally, it's good. (laughs) So you're on your way now. But, but of course, that's hard uh, because it is a lot of work. And Truthfully, I think a lot of people kind of shortcut uh, or short-circuit the process these days because after they get a little bit of feedback, they'll go and publish the book. Now, nothing wrong with publishing the book yourself or through a publisher or hybrid or whatever you do, but I've noticed that more and more people, once they get a little bit of bad feedback, they'll say, I'm just going to go publish my book myself. And so they'll do so, but just the fact that they're publishing it themselves doesn't mean that it's suddenly better. It doesn't mean that it's suddenly worth publishing. And so right. I feel like because of the ease that the self-publishing world has today, that some people are publishing too, too early in the process of shaping their stories. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. I mean, if I, were, if I weren't hounded by my, you know, my readers and my editor and my agent, um, I wouldn't be as good a writer. I would be putting out stuff that I thought was done. Um, and um, I think that's just, you know, uh, that's almost normal. Um, and what, what self-publishing does is it short-circuits that yeah. process and allows you to ride on your own, you know, kind of self, self-deception. Um, uh, you know, and for some people, that's good enough. They don't really, you know... I, I can't tell you how many people I know that would be writers if they if they would only revise. Yeah. But once they've written something, they ref, they kind of refuse. It's mm-hmm. like it's sacred. Um, I understand that. I've been there myself. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I mean, you know, I've got I've got way more books thrown away than I've written. And <laughs> I think that you know, when I write a book, like you know, I I I I, I have a way of helping myself through the emotional trauma of having to cut things, I save them in another file and pretend that they're valuable. <laughs> pretend uh, that they're valuable, I know, right? But, uh, but you know, I'll end up with a 300-page book and a 400-page <laughs> cut yeah. file. Now, as you, we mentioned earlier, just thinking about the reader's experience with uh, the story and trying not to get in, the way of disrupting that, waking them from the dream and so on, how do you do that when you're writing? Like, how do you say, okay, look, I want to imagine what a reader is experiencing, you know, at this point in the story. Or are there any um, 
I guess, techniques that you use to try and climb into the minds of your readers as you're writing? Uh, not so much as I'm writing, but uh, between definitely um, toward toward when I'm when I'm done with a, a, a draft, hmm. um, I read out loud. Okay, and yeah. somehow that um, you know it's hard work to read out loud. It's hard work. It, it you know you your 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 throat gets sore and, and it takes and it takes a long time and um you know when you when you notice a word coming out of your mouth or a sentence coming out of your mouth that you don't want to say you know that yeah. that that just doesn't feel right i think that's one way of putting yourself uh in the experience of the reader um you know that's part of it. I always think about this thing that Elmore Leonard said, which is his his you know he's got a lot of one-liners, but one of them is you know what's the secret of writing? It's to leave out the boring parts. Yeah. Uh, so I think of that. I think of that while I'm writing. Uh, you know, it's like you know, don't be boring. Let's let's get right to what to what matters. But I think my biggest tool really is is getting to the end of something and then you know giving it some shelf time and reading it out loud, and I'm pretty ruthless when I do that because I kind of don't like to read out loud for, you know, 10 hours. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. You know, if it be, if something starts to feel tedious, then it, it is. Hmm. And um, if the words start to feel uh, awkward, they don't taste right, they don't, they don't seem real, then they, they are. That's what the reader is going to feel too, I think. I mean, that's good. We sometimes hear that you know, suggestion to read your work out loud, especially with dialogue. But I think you bring up a good point that really, you know, all of the sections of of the book, if you're reading them aloud and you're like, wait a minute, this isn't working, it's probably a good mm-hmm. indication that you need to take a careful look at that section, you know, of mm-hmm. your story. Um, yeah. what, one of the things I was thinking of with your books is this idea of tension. Like, you know, there's mystery involved and there's, characters that are unique and different, but also there's this idea of tension, of wanting to flip the page to get to the next page to mm-hmm. find out, you know, what's going to happen or, or, or things like that. So are there um, any specific tools that you use, you know, consciously to say, I'm going to ratchet up the tension here, um, and, uh, and any, any mm-hmm. secrets you can share with... Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, one secret is I, I, actually, I actually use screenplay structure for my novels. Screenplay, uh, okay. Yeah, uh, and I really think about, I really use some of the core concepts of, of film writing or novel writing, and all the way from the, the bigger, the architecture, the, you know, the three acts, the plot points, the hook, the, you know, the things that, that we know about screenwriting, to the idea of scene writing, scenes and sequences. Um, and I, I take to heart the, the rule of thumb for screenwriting in late out early, which means that you take a scene and you chop off the first 25% and the last 25% and play the middle of it. Um, so that's a technique. Um, I try to, I try to make sure that I think of chapters as many stories, um, with, with plot points in them, three parts. You know, it's kind, of, it's kind of mechanical when you think about it that way, but um, every piece of it has to be, um, has to have dramatic integrity. Um, 
And so I will, you know, I use a, I use a, I use something called Scrivener. I don't know if you're aware uh-huh. of that, but, um, and I use that to, to basically um, organize my drafts so that I can see everything and I can see how, so I can see how chapters begin and how they end and how they link together and what the uh, progression of the little mini story inside each chapter is and how it connects to the one before it and after it. Um, stuff like that it's a lot you know it's it's part of what we're talking about it's a process yeah. to get all that to, to actually come together um you know it's uh, short chapters i think are important um yeah that's I, I, that's interesting i think so too I, I i tend to use short chapters in my own books and in the books that i read i kind of like that i don't know if, if it's just culture today or what i grew up with or you know, um, I think attention spans are not what they, what, they, what they once were. I think we have yeah. to realize that, that we live in an economy of attention, hmm. and um, people, you know, are not going to hang. I'm reading, I'm re- having to read, uh, reading a Nabokov novel called The Gift right now, and I notice myself that it's difficult for me to hang in there, you know, on a 30-page stream of consciousness chapter. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, which is something I wouldn't have blinked an eye at 30 years ago, but now you know I want to. I want the story to move. I also think that the you know the the small bites. It's like it's it's the potato chip theory. It's like how do you eat a, a whole bag of potato chips or well, one chip at a time? And, and with the with the one before makes you want to eat the next one and so forth. So the the small chapters makes it difficult to put the book down. I think. I think so. I mean, I think that's true. You know, for me, and how did you know about my chip-eating habits anyway? That's what I want to know. Oh, well, who doesn't have a chip-eating habit? Yeah, the idea that um, it's it's good for people to remember. Well, two things that I thought of as you were talking. One is it's good for people to remember that um, we are in a war for people's eyeballs, like and there are a million things warring for their eyeballs, whether it's movies or you know um, video games, social media, whatever it is. Whereas thirty years ago, it wasn't that wasn't the case really. I mean, certainly you had television and so on, radio and stuff, but but um, but now there are just so many things vying for people's attention that we have to kind of up our game as you know as writers or as storytellers and. And uh, to to really engage people and and keep them, you know, really engaged um, with the stories that we tell. The other thing um, that I thought of, oh, what was the other thing that I thought of? I'll think of it in a second again. <laughs> I lost track of it, but but um, but yeah, no, the short chapters uh, I think can be super helpful as long as they're not too gimmicky. Oh, I remember this. So, other thing I was going to say: the people today are narratively astute, very narratively astute. Like, mm-hmm. if we watch a television show, and they might flip mm-hmm. from one timeline to another, one point of view to another. Yeah. Same in, in our in our yeah. books, you know, our novels, and so on. People can track with that today, mm-hmm. whereas you know, back in the day, I I you just didn't see that as much. You think that 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 fiction in general, whether it's you know v- visual or in print, is 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 less linear, more fluid, moves faster. I think. And, and I think that's true. Can stay with that. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I think. Um, like, if you 
this is my view at least, and I may be totally wrong, but you know, when there were novels and then television came along and they started to basically novelize or uh, televise the novel and, and so on. But then, you know, stuff became interesting where you could switch different point of views through camera lenses and angles and you could tell one story and then overlay with another story. And, and so I, at least I sense that fiction writing has sort of now started to follow those cinematic choices where uh, we have a lot of point-of-view characters and very often time slips and different past-present stories and so on like that. And mm-hmm. I think people have grown up with it and you're, they're used to it um, from, from television and that type of media so that they can follow along with, with stories. So it's, it seems like stories are now following the cinematic, um, I guess, pattern a little bit more than they used to. I think there's some something coming that guys like you and me are not going to get either, and it's it's games. Games. It's oh wow! Yeah. Influence of games on people's understanding of what a character is and what a narrative is, and you know, I see the impact of that, and it's, it's you know, to me, it's uh, you know, uh, it's not pretty, but um, you know, something's going on there, and it's real. I mean, the people that play games are not. They're not dummies, and they're not—you know—they've got the same level of intellect and taste that I do, and um, they are deeply absorbed in this and committed to it, and it's—and it's—it's shaping their aesthetic. And that's I think yeah, that's, that's one of the friction points in my writing classes that I'm—I'm—I'm I'm, I'm seeing stuff that doesn't look good to me, and I'm trying to figure out how to talk about it in ways that are not you know that are that are helpful and productive um but it really seems like people are are basing their understanding of character and story and pacing and everything else on what they've been doing with their lives since they were old enough to have a an xbox and i don't know where it's headed i'll probably be well i will certainly be retired before (laughs) before i figure that out (laughs) But I think that's something that I think that's going to have an impact similar to what you've described as the impact of TV and film on fiction writing. Hmm. I've interviewed a few people who write, um, help create narrative worlds for games, um, Mm -hmm. and also write novels and so on. And, uh, and, you know, the idea of character development, the idea of tension and drama, pursuit, you know, setbacks, and all of these things that, you know, we may, may weave into our novels or, you know, an oral storyteller might weave into the stories that he or she is sharing, you know. A lot of those are woven right into the fabric of the, in the narrative fabric of these games. and that Right, but a, the language, they don't have the language to execute it on the page. Mm. The language is flat. Yeah, that's Uh interesting. The language Uh is flat, the style is flat, and and the the people that are telling the stories that way on the page do not have the the, the skills, the literary skills, the vocabulary, the stylistic, you know, strength, et cetera, to do that on the page and make it engaging. Mm, I think what's engaging on the the game screen, um, you know, it would take a, you know, it doesn't, doesn't translate. You can't write it down on a, on a page in the language that you have as someone who has never really read or written um, and make it compelling. That's interesting. Yeah, that is int- the wordsmithing. 
you know, that um, the bare bones of a story might be there, but if people aren't used to, you know, um, the you know using language to convey meaning so much that that it might uh, it might be weaker. That's interesting. Yeah, I like I need to think about that. It's always good to hear when you said that there you know there are people that write that are writing novels and also games. I think that's great. I mean, it's good to <laughs> yeah. hear. That's, that's, that's encouraging. I'm trying for to remember who I interviewed. Novels too. Yeah. <laughs> so now, um, like I mentioned, I have Bad Moon Rising right here, and I don't know if it's mm-hmm. available everywhere yet. But tell us a little bit about the other books in the series. I know that at least two have already been released: Bad X County and Dead man dancing um mm-hmm. and uh is there anything you want to share about uh, i mean we've talked about setting and character and stuff but is there anything uh, you'd like to share about inviting people to read the series or where's the best place for them to start is it at you know the beginning of the series what would you say as far as inviting readers into the world that you've created Sure, and thanks for giving me that chance. Um, I, of course, would always like someone to start at the beginning, but in the Bad X series particularly because um, my protagonist, her name is Heidi Kick. She is a former dairy queen. She's this young woman that I see out in the coolies, as we call them, uh, who has grown up on a farm. She can drive a tractor. She can drive a truck. She can shoot a gun. She can ride a horse. She can castrate a bull. She's in the <laughs> choir. She plays softball. She's on the rodeo team. Um, and, you know, just these incredibly powerful, accomplished um, young women, women, and she's on a, and in itself, we have a queen culture where there's a, a dairy queen and an apple queen and a sturgeon queen. And a, you know. <laughs> uh, so my character starts her life as someone who's kind of a privileged farm girl and is pretty and smart and is uh, a dairy queen, is, is selected to be the dairy queen. And um, so what you get is the origin story and how we get from that character to someone who uh, whose life is dismantled um, through a tragedy and comes back to life again as uh, somebody who's going to enforce the law in her community um, and and buck the, the you know the old boys network. So. Bad Axe County, which is book number one uh, in the series, is this gives you the origin story of Heidi Kick, and it also introduces you to um, a part of rural culture that's really unknown. When I was doing research for this for the book, um, I came across an academic study about sex trafficking and in the Midwest, and uh, the researchers had gone around and asked rural law enforcement professionals, all of whom were men, uh, leaders. Um, about sex trafficking in their communities, and they just collectively shrugged and said, what, we don't have it. Um, The researchers went around and asked the exact same questions to emergency room workers and rape crisis center workers and women's shelters and social services, a population of professionals, predominantly women, uh, in caregiving, and they said, it is an epidemic. Hmm. Hmm. And so my character, Heidi, what happens if you bring... uh, a, a whole different kind of character into law enforcement and give her some power. Is she going to see things that other people have been looking past or haven't been seeing? Um, so that first book is really about um, my little town being a, a stopover on essentially a silk road um, out to the, out to the um, fracking fields. Um, and there's um, trafficking passing through there. Um, so, so that's that's the first one. The second one, she she um, 
has to deal with a uh, you know white white supremacy and a little uh, little incident in her hometown that um, she deals with and then calls you know puts her in the in the uh, puts her in the spotlight of the national media and the national uh, white power movement and so forth and um, has to deal with that stuff coming to town. Pretty uh, contemporary storylines, John. That's yeah, good. yeah. It's managed to uh, <laughs> sort of, sort of by luck, or maybe, maybe you know, a little bit of prescience. You sort of yeah. stay a year or two ahead of the uh, the zeitgeist. Well, John, this has been really uh, a great conversation. I really enjoyed you know connecting with you a little bit, picking your brain about stories and character and setting and all of this, and hearing about about your um, your other books and also just, like I said, trying to wrench Bad Moon Rising from the hands of my <laughs> office manager. Hey, I can um, send you another one if you never get it back. <laughs> I appreciate that. Where Where's the best place for people to connect with you online or to keep an eye out for when this book or others of yours come out? Uh, JohnGalligan.com, my website. Um, We'll give you all the information that you need. The um, Bad, uh, Bad Moon Rising uh, comes out on June 29th, I believe it is. Um, the other two books um, uh, are available already, and the first book, Bad X County, is also out in paperback now. So, oh, um, I also have a four-book series uh, where my protagonist is a uh, is a fly fisherman and uh, solves mysteries related to that. And then I have a standalone novel that takes place... Um, in Japan called Red Sky, Red Dragonfly. And those you can access those all through going to my website. All right, excellent. So johngalligan.com. Um, and uh, John, thanks um, so much for being here today and uh, giving me uh, you know, some, some good advice and also give some good memories of being up there in southern Wisconsin. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks to our listeners. Um, for, for tuning in and for more information about our guests and to check out other interviews, search for us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, or click to thestoryblender.com. Don't forget to like us and subscribe to receive our weekly podcasts on Friday evenings. Tell your stories well, my friends, and always remember... The art of the story is all in the blend. Take care, everyone, and we'll see you next time.